Howard Lindzen is the founder and general partner at Social Leverage. All opinions expressed by Howard and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Social Leverage or StockTwits. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. Guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. And welcome to Panic with Friends, and this is your host, Howard Lindzen. Right now, there's no panic, and I have enough friends. Can we change the name of this show? (laughs) Panic with Strangers, maybe? How about just Party with Strangers? I miss you. I'm in San Diego. Where are you? Me? I'm in uh, Phoenix, in Phoenix. Do you miss me? Do I have to answer that? Of course I miss you. We got a pipe burst. We got a pipe burst aisle 12 at the Lindzen household, (laughs) so I, I got in my car. And I moved to Beverly, Coronado. Thankfully, it was the house and not you that had a pipe burst. I've been living with a pipe burst canoe since my 20s. <laughs> so um, today we're going to switch it up. We're going to talk to a great founder in Toronto in my industry, the uh, financial industry. Right. And really talk about sentiment. You know, there's all this buzz. It's interesting because the name of his company is Buzz Holdings, not a cannabis company. I told him it's not a cannabis company. It is a uh, financial services business focused on creative ETFs and a hedge fund. And uh, I'll let Jamie introduce himself better. But I wanted to talk about sentiment today because, you know, in the era of Twitter and, of course, stock twits and um, the Wall Street bet saga and the rise of the retail investor. We leave these breadcrumbs, these signals, these little pieces of data through our discussions and our sentiment, and uh, people try and uh, read into that data. And now there's products that uh, you can buy that allow you access to ETFs that trade based on sentiment and Buzz Index. Buzz Holdings has got uh, a new product, so I wanted to talk about that and how they construct it. Or what, or we'll, we'll talk about a little bit about what he can talk about. But anyways, Jamie's from Toronto, my old hometown. And uh, so is that enough for you, Knut? Are you ready? I am so ready. And uh, would you like me to dial him up? Let's dial him up. All right. Hello. Hello, Toronto. You guys have been locked down for four years, five years. How long has it been? Sure feels that way. And uh, not sure there's an end in sight here as we keep slipping down the rankings of vaccinations per capita. So lockdown forever. Welcome to Canada. Yeah, Toronto had a uh, arrogance about it. As a, as a Torontonian who left, I always worried about my friends who were always endlessly bullish. There's no way to stop Toronto. It's impossible. It's open borders. It's uh, high rises to the end of time. It's a real estate town, no leverage. Meanwhile, COVID comes along and turned Toronto into a bit of a third world place. You know, worse than New York, I think, worse than LA. Uh, you've got this like lockdown mentality and no plan. And a lot of Toronto's built underground. So uh, give me a lay of the landscape there quickly before we dig into things. Yeah, our office is uh, in the downtown core and it is connected with what used to be this vibrant and remarkable, we call it the path system. And it's basically a network of tunnels connecting a couple square miles of downtown, all the buildings to each other, which comes in very handy in our winter. We don't have to freeze going from building to building. But of course, that path system was filled with 
shops catering to the hundreds of thousands of people walking by every day. And I had reason to go down to the office yesterday and you walk through the path and it's it's really hard to see 98% of the stores closed, not a single person down there. Just the, the, the economic toll and every individual shop owner that suffered through that is um, difficult. And many of, one, many of whom we knew because we shopped in their stores and walked by every day. So we'll be tough when we get back, if and ever we get back to our daily lives downtown. Hopefully they can come back as well. Yeah. Well, you, as someone who had office downtown and now has actually the, your industry is, I think, the biggest they hated making the switch, but it'll be the biggest benefactor of a post-COVID world, higher margins, less commercial real estate. As a financial services business, how do you see that changing? Will you go back to five days down on the high rises? I don't think that'll ever happen again. You know, I think we're, we're fortunate in the sense that this is the one crisis that our business isn't responsible for. Um, and because of all the previous ah. crises, we've been, you know, forced to be very well prepared for disaster recovery, work from home, things like that. And I think there was a general sense that, you know, work from home wasn't really practical and how productive would people be? And now we've been dragged into it. And I'm sure you can agree as well that we've all been amazed probably beyond our expectations, not only how productive we can be, but how well the financial system as a whole can work with everyone sitting in different locations. Um, And so I, I don't think we ever go back to that old normal. I think there's still value for sure, and having team events and being in team environments and, and having that you know face-to-face contact, but the requirement of a five-day work week and asking of your employees to commute for an hour plus to come into the office five days a week is in many ways lost productivity. And we can still be very productive and achieve our business goals by working remotely in some form or fashion. That was a really good insight. This is the first crisis that Wall Street didn't create. <laughs> God bless him. We're going to come up with something really big for the next crisis. That is that is so true, right? Like this was a crisis created by. We'll find out one day, maybe. So, um, but man, that's not good for downtown corridor Toronto. I just don't see why a bank would keep six floors of a high rise. Maybe they keep it and put four people in it, but like that underground. I, there's the saddest thing that. Uh, about Toronto was how vibrant that underground is. And I don't know what the hell happens now down there. Also interesting how everyone was moving towards shared office space, Um, you know, shared workstations. No one has a designated spot on the floor anymore. That was sort of a pre-COVID reality. And also, um, I guess, you know, considering the, the use case of everyone having that space and needing all that space. And now that makes a lot of sense, but will people be comfortable in smaller footprints and sharing desktops, even if they're all vaccinated? Or is there still going to be a hangover from all this where people will feel that they don't want to share and be around other people? It it will take some time for it all to get sorted out one way or another. But ultimately, we get comfortable being around each other and shared space makes a lot of sense and allows people to work from home and productivity goes up. So let's now get into Buzz Holdings. Tell people a little bit about the business today. We can because I want to get right into sentiment and the new products and how the world's connected. So, so tell people a little bit about Buzz Holdings. Yeah, Buzz Holdings was really born out of a hedge fund that I managed that started in 2009 called Periscope Capital. Um, but a few years after we launched, this is, let's say, seven plus years ago, um, a few things caught my eye. The first was what you were doing with StockTwits. And the second were, you know, some academic-like research thinking about the increased 
um, acceptance and use of individuals going to online platforms, talking about stocks, and, and it really extending out beyond those first penny stock chat message boards and things of that nature. And I thought to myself, well, I believe this is a trend that will continue in the same way that people have become much more comfortable sharing every aspect about their lives in online communities. It started with their social lives, then their experiences with products and brands and restaurants and all of the things that we do in our day-to-day lives. And to the extent we become more comfortable with that, the evolution of that would be our financial lives. And, you know, we are all very used to sitting around a dinner table, a water cooler, talking about stocks, sharing ideas. Well, here's platforms like StockTwits and more popping up that would allow individuals to find like-minded people from around the world, really. And it really didn't matter around their investment style or technique. It wasn't just super high growth momentum stocks or penny stocks or the tech sector. It was really all stocks that were being talked about. And for a long time, I thought to myself, well, you know, sentiment has been this thing that's driven markets since the first day a stock ever traded on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. We know that and we know sentiment can lead to bubbles. And we know because of that, most people think of sentiment as some contrarian indicator, but we never had this way of measuring it. And the problem was we tried to measure it by proxy, by polls, by survey, by market-related proxies, retail volumes, put call ratios, the VIX, things like that. Or we would just turn on our financial media and flip over to CNBC and see some expert telling us that sentiment is either high or low, and that's why we should act a certain way with respect to that stock. And of course, that person had no data behind their gut instinct. They just looked at a stock price or a stock chart and referred to that as sentiment. So my thought was, well, if all these people are going to be sharing their views, that will be a data source that we could use to measure sentiment at the individual stock level. And that's something that was never really possible before. It was always from a more of a macro perspective. And I'm not sure what we want to do with this information, but I do know that I want to know what those sentiments are. And thus began now a seven plus year research project that we call Buzz. And it led to the formation of the Buzz Index that we'll talk about that we launched back in December of 2015. So cool because there were so many people that like were, and I was way early and I don't have any real skills. Canuck and my wife can attest to that, uh, but that's for a separate podcast. But what I knew was my one instinct was, you know, back when I started Wall Street was like, oh my God, like as a, as the outsider looking in on institutions, I'm like, they don't know how to read YouTube and flash forward today. They don't know how to read stock twits. They don't know how to read, um, obviously Wall Street bets, they just got run over by the size and scale of the internet on GameStop. So I'm 12-year overnight success. You're about eight years going into sentiment. Because I remember in 09, oh, yeah, we got a sentiment hedge fund. And I'm like, you have like an hour worth of data. Get back to me in 10 years. And all those people are now gone. You and I have kept track once a year or whatever. It was Stocktoberfest over this time. And now your moment has come. Does it, is it fun? Um, is it fun? The journey is fun, for sure. Um, I think that my my views on the individual investor, on the intelligence of that community and the insights from that community hasn't changed. So sure, there's some validation in a wider audience being accepting of that view today. And GameStop helped push that forward, or at least that conversation forward. Um, the, I remember the early days were difficult. There's no doubt when we launched the index, most people pointed to us as being something gimmicky. And, you know, we're rooted in their belief that Sally from Indiana had no valid opinion around the value of an equity. 
Um, and I always push back on that. Not only could we see from the conversation in the community that these weren't the typical sheep that most people had thought of them as for many years, but they actually did independent research. And, and most interesting to me was the lens from which they did that research, sort of free of Wall Street bias and you know, being hired into a firm with a specific approach to security valuation. These individuals put in the work, they had an internet available to them to give them tons of data and information to make their own decisions. And the decisions they made oftentimes were not necessarily at odds with what we see in Wall Street, but just unique to things that Wall Street wouldn't even consider. Um, and the collective opinion of, of all of that information and of all of those research ideas really did provide some insight and so far has proven to us and through the index that sentiment isn't this easily contrarian thing that many people thought it was over the years. So what does the product look like today? It looks the exact same as when we launched it in December of 2015. So the buzz index, um, you know, the, and in our mind, how we think about it, it's the benchmark measurement of broad investor sentiment across large cap U.S. equities. And so when we created this index, we really created it from the point of view of proof of concept of let's think about the large cap universe only. We can talk about why we focus on large cap U.S. equities. And then from that, we are going to determine which stocks might be eligible for the index and then from those eligible stocks, how do we create the index and then rebalance it every month so that we're reflecting the, the 75 large cap U.S. equities that have the highest levels of aggregate investor sentiment? So um, where are you at in assets and how do you grow this and who is this product for? Right. So the, the index was originally created for um, a Canadian asset manager who approached us and said, hey, we heard what you guys are doing on this NLP modeling and the sentiment analysis, and we think it's interesting. And we're thinking about you know, diversifying our business. We have a relationship with a US CTF issuer. Create an index of what you're doing. That was the proof of concept that, that really grabbed me at the time. And we'll give it to the CTF provider and off we go. And so that happened in, in December 2000, sorry, in April 2016. Buzz launched as, a, as an ETF and traded, and no one heard about it, and no one cared about it. And the original partner had zero plans for distribution, zero plans for marketing, and it, it was an orphaned ETF, essentially. Um, and so we left it out there for a couple of years and just shut it down, recognizing that we, re, you know, we really needed the right partner and the right, um, I, I guess, uh, you know, a, a group that would really understand what we were trying to achieve and understand the use case of sentiment as, as potentially a factor that always existed, but we can now, you know, measure and put out into the world so that you can choose to allocate capital to either growth or equity or momentum or value or sentiment, right? It's, it's a factor that we can quantify now. And, but we kept the index alive. It's since been licensed to a German firm called Akatis based out of Frankfurt. It's small over there. I think they've got 30 something million of assets in the fund. Um, but what we're really excited about is back in the fall, we came to an agreement um, with Van Eck, who um, has agreed to license the index, and it will be launching an ETF form uh, in early March. So bringing it back to market, this time with the support of an organization who sees the value of the aggregate collective conviction and that sentiment is a thing that matters, that we can measure, that has proven over five years to outperform. And uh, now more than ever with what's happened with you know game stocks and individual investors being in the news and, and their collective insights being in the news, um, the timing is, is much better for Buzz to make its second appearance in ETF form. 
And how do you pull the data? How do, what do you, how do you decide what's a good data source and how much is enough? And can you share a little bit of that? Sure. Um, without all the secret sauce, generally our view is more is better. And generally our view within Buzz is there is no expert. Um, we want to really listen to everyone's opinions and where we can find those opinions across online forums will generally be, quote, listening. The two largest sources of volume, uh, as you'll know, are StockTwit and Twitter. And then collectively from forums like Yahoo Finance or Seeking Alpha or comment sections, blog posts, things of that nature, um, they represent a much you know, smaller subset of the data, but we still consume it because everyone's voice matters and we want to be sure that Buzz can really be as representative of the collective and the community as possible. And so what comes after, or is this just endless market cap upside? So what's the, what's the goal here? Yeah, so you know what we do when we construct the index and 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 the goal of allowing you know a, an efficient vehicle for people to invest in in our approach to security selection is you know I mentioned the large cap focus and then there's two reasons we we set it up to be a large cap focus. First, um, we wanted the index and the constituents within the index to be stocks that were relatable to people, stocks that people knew they could see them all the time. They weren't names that they were unfamiliar with. This is not a you know a small cap, high turnover kind of situation. And so keeping it at you know, market caps of companies 5 billion or higher, not only made it investable, um, but it also made it relatable to individuals. The other thing that was important to us when we're thinking about the kinds of 5 billion and up market caps that would be eligible for investment is it was, we want to make sure that, that that's, those stocks that are being talked about are talking about in a consistent, diverse, and broad way over a period of time for us to even consider them as eligible. And that way, the reason we, we thought about it from that perspective was, well, if you have this consistency and breadth of conversation where it doesn't matter if there's a, a, a corporate event that's happening, an earnings release, a, you know, a drug discovery, whatever, that you know, if you have a spike in conversation, then it goes away. If you have a consistent baseline of conversation, then you should have more confidence that when you're seeing changes in sentiment from that baseline, that it really is reflective of a broader community and a broader trend. And that has prevented a lot of the one-and-done stories or small small stocks that just have a news event that then go away from influencing the types of names that can get into the index. And the goal of the index, and I guess the goal of, of you know, relaunching the index now with our partners at Venec is, again, because it's a broad measure of large-cap U.S. equities, it's very investable. And to the extent that people think that sentiment matters and sentiment does influence asset prices, you know, we can provide them that in a really dynamic way in the sense that there's no constraints on the index. There's no sector constraints. There's, you know, monthly rebalancing. So it's current. It's not a lagged reading of sentiment. It's really the, the, the names that we view as being the most poised to outperform in the coming month. Are you a student of sentiment yourself or you're relying on the machines? Obviously, you believe in this like I believe in this. I, I call it the social VIX, right? I'm like, I always used to yell at the team. It's like, why, you know, even if it's not true, you know, you know, eventually the data becomes better. Stake a claim and create a social VIX. Um, it may not work all the time, but at inflection points, you can look back at these data sets. And, and to, how do you use data personally in your investing? Or are you just completely quant? Uh, well, in the Buzz Index, you know, the, it's a completely quant approach in the sense that the models that we've developed in-house at Buzz and at Periscope are the natural language processing models that take in all the raw posts and score them as being either positive, neutral, or negative. 
And so, you know, we spent a lot of time developing those models in-house and training them specifically to understand the way people talk about stocks, which is very different than the way people talk about everything else in their lives. Um, you know, that was one of the early insights we had when we started this process and looked at some third-party providers. You know, many of them were just transitioning sentiment models that were trained on consumer product data or some, you know, more typical use case at the time, and then pointing it to stock twits and saying, what's the sentiment here? Um, and of course, you have no look through on those models and very little confidence that things that are positive or negative are being scored by the model the way they should be. I mean, you and I, Howard, could read every post and know very easily if that user is talking about a stock from a positive or negative perspective. You know, a lay person couldn't, and a model that's not trained with the same financial markets expertise would also not necessarily understand it. Um, and so, you know, having the developers in house and having them train off appropriate data sets so that the models can score sentiment accurately is, is the foundation of what we do. And then it's about aggregating that information and understanding each month which stocks have the highest conviction or not that leads to the output of the index. And in the end, the performance of the vehicle is what will matter. The question I have next is, you know, people say, oh, you're selling our data, Howard. And I'm like, um, how do you feel about that? Like, if you're not, if the product's free, are people really getting front run here? Or is it just, there's nothing they should worry about that their sentiment is being insinuated? No one really knows who the people are. How do you, how do you work with the data? Yeah, as you know, there's no privacy concerns. The public is, the information of the data is all sort of public facing data. And, you know, we don't know who the individuals are behind whatever their various handles are or anything more about them other than the handle and what their post said, which is all public information. I really view it as, you know, the service that we're providing is many of these people are probably interested in what the aggregate is. I, I can't tell you how many times I go on stock twits and, you know, the conversation is so fast. You need a computer to make sense of it all in one, in one way or another, right? It's just, it's happening too quickly that you can get a gut feel for it if you spend enough time focusing on, you know, the, the post scrolling by. Um, but really a computer helps distill it and helps really give you, um, you know, the conviction behind, you know, is the community positive around this one and which, which stocks are more relatively positively viewed than the others. Um, and then we can relay that information back to the community. So in, in many ways, I don't see us as taking people's information and making use of it for our benefit. I think of it quite the other way where we're taking that information, we can curate it, we can aggregate it, and we can present it back to them. In a, in a ranking list, that's a reflection of their views. And hopefully that adds value to them and adds to the conversation where people can now debate. Do they agree? Do they disagree? And that's fostering more conversation, which is more data for the models to think about, which hopefully leads to better outcomes. Is there good data, bad data? Is it, with, or is it just different data? Is YouTube, when do you decide what, what becomes a new data source? And that's got to be your most expensive part of the business is paying for the data. So when do you decide something should be in the index? Yeah, we don't, um, we don't differentiate between platforms. You know, there's good and bad on every platform and we don't rank the value of a post from platform A over platform B. That's our democratized view of the world. Um, so that's, that's generally how we approach that equation. Um, and, and the same goes for, for the individuals. You know, we've seen, I think, Howard, last I looked, you, you noted yourself as an intermediate investor on StockTwits. Is that right? Correct. Right. So, you know, the idea that we should think of 
are you, you know, is Howard really an interim? He's got a lot of experience and I think he's pretty good, but we, we found a lot of that happening, right. Where, um, you know, individuals that may self-label themselves one way may actually have proven performance quite a different way. Um, and in fact, some of the better performing individuals on the communities are likely ha- taking a more self-deprecating view of their skill set than some of the more promotional individuals or, or even um, services that might be communicating with people on those platforms. So we really don't overweight anyone or overweight any one platform. We let the aggregate view speak for itself. In, in terms of the noisiness of the data, we do spend a lot of time, and this is part of our sentiment models, um, you know, the, the, the self-labeling, the self-training of the models, there's in our minds quite a lot of conversation that happens that is neutral in its opinion around the stock, um, yet individuals may flag it as either being bullish or bearish. So it has to go in our minds beyond just how people self-label their posts, but how you know, how we actually view the post or how the model actually views the post. An easy example would be an earnings release. You know, uh, IBM reports $4 a share of profit. You have some people that label that positive and some people that label that as negative. That's their view on it. That's interesting. But it is not sentiment in that post is not necessarily positive or negative in that it's just factual. And so having a model train that and learn that, you, you know, is nuanced. And so introducing that concept of neutrality and what is neutrality, I think helps distill out a lot of the, just the, the basic facts and, and noise around the data set and can leave us with a cleaner view of the posts that are really relevant, specific to sentiment, specific to a, a stock. Really cool. Anything that I've missed in talking about here with the company? That's the company. The company is really singular, singularly focused right now um, on the index and you know what the index has done over the last five years and, and then keeping that going and, and allowing it to be that benchmark um, for sentiment to the extent investors are looking for that kind of exposure. And do you guys have the U.S. operation or is it just governed by um, Canadian right now? Yeah, Buzz is an index company, right? So we're, we're here in Toronto and Canada. Um, no U.S. operations are based. And so how do you see the Wall Street bets GameStop thing playing out as someone who's kind of an in-between? You know, you're just watching it as a, as a fan or a bystander. How do you think it changes the business? I think that the GameStop event um, is really helpful to the business in the sense that it opens up people's minds to this idea that these individuals on online communities um, have some influence and have some say and can actually move some markets um, and that they're not these sheep. It's not that they just randomly picked GameStop and every week they're picking a new GameStop to run up you know, tenfold. It's not that at all. This was a very well thought out classic short squeeze, simple as that, right? Where they identified an opportunity and those opportunities were collaborated and discussed. And here we go, we've got a short squeeze and they executed on it perfectly. Um, That's the way I view what happened. Now, I think a lot of people will take away from that or maybe wrongfully take away from that, that the, the individuals that are in these online platforms are all bad actors and looking to, you know, accomplish some, some very selfish goals potentially, or just manipulate a stock. Um, but that's not the case at all. I think you have to look deeper. Game, GameStop is a symptom of a larger online community, but it is not the behavior of that online larger community. As you know, on StockTwits, the conversation and the collaboration that happens on that platform is not of 
you know, one of price manipulation or, or one that is, you know, generated by bad actors, however you would define that. It really is just a robust engagement across a variety of different types of stocks and risk levels and investing styles and all of those good things. And so to the extent that people start peeling back the layer of why did GameStop exist and that the community beyond the Reddit Wall Street Bets community is very large, I think more and more that will validate what we're doing at Buzz and, and help the business. Very cool. And how do you look at it from the standpoint of Robinhood? You watch this go down from Canada. Good, bad, and different. What was what's the payment for order flow angle that you see as a as someone in the industry and a border away, but understanding U.S. markets? Yeah, I, I get the payment for order flow. Nothing in life comes free, all right. And and um, you know, Robinhood would be no different than that. There has to be a, a revenue model for them to be able to offer free trading to their clients. You know, out, outside of that, I think some of the questions that were raised around which types of investors could buy or sell or could only do one side of the trade are, are questions that should be asked. I think that the regulatory environment and the capital requirements are also really are, are real issues. I understand those being in the business. Um, you know, because things moved so quickly and hard for me to know exactly the answers to all of those things, but I think they're fair questions for the community to ask and, and should be fair questions for Robinhood to be able to answer to the extent that you know, they have their own self-interest and self-preservation in mind. They had to maintain capital requirements. So how that all shakes out, I think, um, might still to be determined, but that's, that's a view from a long way away up north. And who's winning the battle up there in Canada? Oh, well, you know, Canada is so culturally different, right? You know, people always ask me this about the index. Well, okay, you've got buzz on large cap U.S. equities. Can we do one for Canada? Can we do one for German stocks? And my answer is no, because culturally Canadians, they don't, they're not, we're not online talking about stocks. We're not risk takers. The retail participation in markets in Canada is very much driven by an advisor selling you a mutual fund, no different than it was 30 years ago. So there isn't that that kind of culture to go and collaborate and be online and, and do these things. And, and thus, you know, the discount brokerages or the Robin Hoods of the world don't really matter all that much in Canada because they don't have a wide enough user base to draw from, you know, more traditional platforms. Um, and I think that's the same for, you know, lots of places around the world, you know, like Germany would be one, even the UK um, is much more Canadian than it is American in their approach to markets. China would be the only one that I could think of that would be the closest to the US where that risk tolerance and that, you know, level of individual engagement in financial markets has always been high and that interest level has always been high. Canada might be a wasted market for Robinhood. Yeah, I know. I think they announced it. They announced Australia, UK, and they've kind of backed out each time. It seems like well simple. And I know the founders have done a great job and obviously they've raised a lot of capital and had uh, they understood the market. You know, local knowledge matters, you know. And, and is the tech fascination across Canada or is Canada still a conservative commodity? It seems like it's a speculative, you know, it's core so socialist or, or communal in the sense that everybody follows everybody else. But how, how are the markets different there in terms of how people speculate? There's very little speculation in Canada. I think, you know, that the tech markets in Canada live in academia. So we have very strong academic institutions. Um, you know, Jeff Hinton, uh, you may be familiar with, um, who's now with Google, but, you know, was viewed as this godfather of AI is a U of T professor. Um, and the same goes for University of Waterloo. So, you know, there are many institutions here that have really good credibility when it comes to, you know, being leading edge on 
whether it's artificial intelligence or, you know, just computer science generally, but that, that hasn't really translated to the boom, the Silicon Valley like boom of entrepreneurship in Canada. Um, it's just that culture where we don't see it. And so, you know, some of the best minds might venture off to Silicon Valley. Chamath is one of them that we all know about now, right? Um, mm-hmm. From his adventures in SPACs. Um, but again, here's a Canadian who went to University of Waterloo. So we do a great job of preparing or educating. We fall down, I think, pretty hard when it comes to allowing for risk-taking, encouraging that environment and, and, and encouraging local companies to grow. And, you know, the odd one, like a Shopify, will push through all that noise and achieve greatness. But, you know, there's not thousands of, of Shopify's being incubated in Canada, not the culture. Yeah, not the culture. And we're seeing that's now play out at like highly leveraged form real estate wise with COVID. You know, it's one of the big myths is that, you know, all the tax rules and all the build buildings to the sky. And uh, there'll be a lot of repurposing going on over the next 20 years in Toronto. It'll be interesting because people still want to, I think, live there. But like Toronto is the one city that really has me. COVID really did a number on Toronto, you know, or Toronto really did a number on itself. So I'm really rooting, but I'm a little nervous because it's like seems so far behind for a great city compared to the other great cities. Like I'm ready to go to New York in April, right? I got my shot. I can't wait to walk the streets of New York. And it's like, yeah, Toronto is like an afterthought at this point. So I really rooting for Toronto. I just don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. So what's your style of investing? Like, as we look forward to the end of 21 in the future, how do you look at the world right now? Well, you know, if I'm looking at the world through my lens of buzz, I, I'm really excited for it. And, and that's because the, the amount of conversation, and this is a post-COVID thing, and the amount of conversation that we're ingesting in our models has doubled post-COVID, right? So this is another structural change in the way people live their lives. And the types of names and the diversity of, of those names that get into the index always fascinate me. Like every, every monthly rebalance comes along and I look at it and the first thing I think of is there isn't another portfolio manager in the world or, you know, a collection of 13 F filings that would look like the portfolio that we get out of Buzz where we can have names like our top two names right now in Buzz, Twitter and Ford, right? And then you go down the list and you've got DraftKings and American Airlines and Apple and Tesla and Virgin Galactic and then a bunch of pharmaceutical companies. So it's, it's just so diverse and interesting where you can see these, you know, names that have real positive momentum behind them. You have names that, you know, the community views as deep value names now, all of a sudden they've fallen too far and you get this cross range of styles to lean on to, to include. And then you have the dynamic nature of it where that could change the next month, right? And so I like investing alongside that. My investment style today, to answer directly your question, is to invest alongside the insights of an ever-growing, more intelligent, broad individual community of thinkers who are not, you know, biased to old Wall Street tendencies of, you know, being upset that value is not outperforming growth and having been upset about that for the last decade. Um, I think that these individuals provide real insight and I just get to invest alongside them. Yeah, wouldn't it be fascinating? We're the same way. That's why I think uh, get along even though we don't see each other or talk that often is that why wouldn't you follow the crowd as it gets smarter? You know, they're learning. It's like the old movie. Oh, they're learning the velociraptors. And like you said, yelling at your computer because value underperformed does not change 
what's happening in the markets. You have to follow along and read the tea leaves, but it seems like value just when everybody threw in the towel value. Uh, and it's not because it's value. It's just because all the Utes have figured out there's some other companies out there that uh, they're interested in. And and Twitter being one of them, you can see the sentiment shifting. I've been telling people as much as I'm not a fan of the company that the stock was going higher. And uh, here we are. The sentiment was yeah. there. The thing I think is super interesting is the conviction of the community as a whole and around certain themes that are happening in our economy. So, you know, chip makers have always been a big part of buzz. And I remember when AMD was in the index and it was, you know, in the teens and and I would turn on CNBC and the analysts would say, this is overvalued, this is overvalued. And, And look at how that sector has performed over the last number of years. And the conviction to that sector has never wavered. I think that is the biggest value of these individuals that are educated, that know what's happening, that see you know, how gaming is changing the world and how the need for these processors is going to continually increase. And mm. you have that you yeah. have that sort of comfort behind you knowing that the aggregate conviction is there and it allows you to stay in that stock and not say, well, it went from 15 to 30. Now it's overvalued or now it's too high. It's not at all. The sentiment was rising as the prices were rising. Um, that provides a lot yes. of insight. And I saw that on stock tips. I mean, I, I, don't, I wish I was a quant, but I don't need to be a quant. I see our trending tickers and it went from years of low vol in the same stocks and to then years of the fangs. And now every day I wake up on stock twits and it's like the trending is filled with ideas that I never would have imagined seeing. It's like a symphony of new names and SPACs and crypto and weekends are just crypto now and the stock talk stops Friday at the market close and everybody opens up their crypto accounts or NFT. It's just fast. And then Monday morning back to the markets and then at night, you know, this and how many uh, filings were there for for SPACs. So that switch ain't getting flicked off anytime soon, which is so this trend should now continue. I think that the key is how do you ride this? How do you harness? And I think the crowd's getting smarter because they figured out using Twitter my big question to myself all the time is the crowd getting smarter because they're following the top people like Gavin Baker, who's like a semiconductor guy and he worked at Fidelity and now he writes on, on Twitter or is he following the crowd? Because the crowd could just be getting smarter and more convicted because they have an idea and then they seek out the person that is smart on the subject and they self-reinforce each other. So it's really interesting because I agree with you. AMD in the teens was something that on stocks which they were going bananas about and everybody was making fun of the retail crew. And here we are, you know, 800% later. Um, and I have to say, I have to be of interest. Like the Twitter sentiment was always very strong, which really confused me. I always thought the crowd was always getting that wrong because they loved the product and they were mistaking the product for the stock price. Now I think it's the opposite. Even though the conviction is high, the amount of people interested has lowered, which is a boon to the stock price, meaning people have moved on to Snapchat and Pinterest, and that's actually a help to Twitter because the conviction of the people that own it is high and the amount of people that own it has dropped over the years, and now the stock's finally going higher. Goldman and Twitter are the most interesting stocks that I've been watching go up and participating, and I'm like, eh, I hate both. Yeah, and I'll note Goldman's in the index as well right now, not quite as high a weight as Twitter. But yeah, it's in there. And I would, I would add that I don't think the crowd is smarter because they're listening to experts. I think the crowd is smarter because when they hear an expert speak, they can validate that comment amongst themselves and, and collectively figure out what it means and then make their own decisions, right? And I think 
you know, th- those days of an expert or star portfolio manager or, you know, really directing and having a lasting impact on markets is, is gone. We used to see this, you know, it's been a long time, but when Donald Trump first started tweeting about stocks, right, you had that reaction to his tweet. And then, of course, we all saw pretty quickly that that reaction mechanism changed, right? And that he could say whatever he wanted about a stock and he could say something positive, it would go down, negative, would go up, it would be largely indifferent. It's because people aren't going to be told what to do by any expert. That expert may spark further conversation, which is great for what we're trying to do and collect the pulse of community, but people don't blindly follow. They're smarter than, than they've been given credit for historically. Yeah. Well, this is great. I got to do sentiment quarterly. So you're going to be the guy going forward. I just, I miss talking about this stuff. Um, And to finally have, you know, the data from someone like you who's pulling it and can speak clearly on it. I think it's just such a value add. And I appreciate that comment. That's what I, I, I agree with you that the crowd is really in charge here. And the institutions actually are lagging, but that I, what I can tell is the institutions are not going to lag for long. They'll pay for the data. They'll pay for the kids to come work for them. And they hate getting beat. And I think that's why Goldman is creeping. You know, it was all like fun and games and they were fake taking it seriously. And now they're dead fucking serious about margins and what the market wants from them for the stock to go up. And, uh, you got other things going on like macro a steep yield curve and yada 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 but uh i just think goldman is one of those brands that it was fun saying they're screwed i was on that bandwagon now you have to wake up and just saying no they're 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 like a smart t-rex it's hard to kill them and i and i love going back to this model of velociraptors right when you watch jurassic park you know even though they were dinosaurs those fucking velociraptors and they're kind of like the retail trader they're pretty damn smart and they're hungry and uh, they realize that the strength in numbers and the communication tools that they have. And, you know, that's why I love watching those things and the way they acted in that movie. They just, you knew you were fucked if they were, if once you heard the first one poke its head up and, you know, maybe, maybe Portnoy or Chamath or, or Wall Street Bets or StockTwits are those places now that uh, were the velociraptors, you know, and the T-Rex will always be around Goldman Sachs. But the Velociraptors are here to stay as well. So I appreciate your time. I am so glad that you guys stuck with this. Um, and I'm excited to see uh, when's the full launch with uh, Van Eck? Uh, should be March, but timing to be confirmed by, uh, by Van Eck. Okay. Uh, great to talk. Thanks for uh, coming on uh, Panic with Friends. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Knutski. Hey, hey. So that's our first Coronado Phoenix podcast in a while. Yeah, I know. It's been, it's been quite a while. How did I do this time? You were fantastic. Really? Yeah. yeah no, officially, yeah, absolutely. All right, buddy. So you are listening, everybody, to Panic with Friends. I'm going to quit on that compliment. Uh, that is the soothe, sultry voice of cigarettes and Norwegian mixed up with the old man voice of Knut Jensen. The ladies love it. The men fear it. I just think it's a great voice. Uh, my sidekick, Knut, we come at you once a week now at a more reasonable pace, talking to great investors, traders, entrepreneurs, founders, to so just try and get a little bit ahead of the markets. We're trying to make a buck. 
So uh, follow us on Spotify or Google or Apple Podcasts. Search my name, search Panic with Friends, do a subscribe and a follow and you'll get an alert once a week. Or come to my free blog, howardlinson.com and uh, say hello. Sign up for my free newsletter and uh, we'll see everybody here next week.